KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The police killing of Breonna Taylor was thrust back into the headlines recently when federal charges were announced against the four current and former Louisville, Kentucky police officers that were involved in the botched raid that led to this tragedy back in March of 2020. We wanted to talk about the importance of this and what it means for police accountability. So we caught up with Dr. Jill McCorkle. She is a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University, also executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. So to start, before we kind of get into the charges and stuff like that, uh, for those who aren't familiar or who have maybe just kind of heard about this in passing, kind of give us a quick overview of what happened in March 2020 that led to the the death of Breonna Taylor. Sure. So police in Louisville, Kentucky, were investigating uh, a couple of players in a local drug ring, one of whom was the ex-boyfriend of Breonna Taylor. And what officers claimed in the aftermath of this tragedy is that they believed that uh, Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend was receiving packages that contained drugs at multiple addresses, including her residence, and she was staying separate from him. They got a uh, search warrant to conduct what's called a no-knock raid on her apartment. And so sometime after midnight in March 2020, They took a battering ram to her door, at which point both uh, Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, heard sounds like someone was breaking in. Kenneth Walker was a licensed firearm owner. He fired one warning shot to where the sounds were coming from at at the door. That shot hit one of the officers in the leg, at which point three of the officers opened fire into the apartment and Breonna Taylor was struck uh, multiple times and died at the scene of a bullet wound to the, to the chest. And all this and the person they were looking for and the drugs they were looking for, there was nothing there, correct? There was absolutely nothing there. And in fact, her ex-boyfriend, whom she had been alienated from for quite a while, has issued statement after statement, including under oath, uh, saying that she had absolutely no involvement in the drug trade, that he absolutely did not have any drugs on the property. And of course, they never found any drugs on the property. And, they, and there was no indication that either Brianna Taylor or that her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, had any drugs in their system. So this was a case that really in the kind of in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, this was a case you heard kind of right there with that, that led to a lot of the racial reckoning uh, protests we had at the state level. There were investigations, some grand juries. It sound, I think there was charges against one officer, but nothing took. Am I being am I correct there? Right. So of the three officers who fired, only one received an indictment from a grand jury, and that was for uh, wanton endangerment. Uh, that officer, Brett Hankison, fired rounds into Breonna Taylor's apartment. And when he fired those rounds, his vision into that apartment was obstructed by the door and by curtains on the windows, which uh, directly violated both Kentucky law as well as department policy. And so the charge that he was facing was connected to the danger that he put other dwellers in that apartment complex in by firing rounds through the shared walls of that apartment building. Uh, The grand jury declined to indict the other two officers opening fire. 
on the premise that they uh, were returning fire in response to the one shot fired by Kenneth Walker. And so they did so in self-defense. So uh, Hankinson was indicted by the grand jury, but uh, subsequently when that case went to trial, he uh, was not found guilty. I think a lot of people that haven't followed this real closely kind of thought that was it. But then recently we had these federal charges that uh, frankly caught me by surprise. This was not something I kind of heard. Usually you kind of hear, you know, when you follow the news, stuff's churning and there's a possibility of as someone who follows this much more closely. uh, Were you surprised or was this something you thought we could see? It's definitely the case that the Justice Department under the Biden administration has indicated that they are going to take seriously instances of police violating people's constitutional rights. And that's what they did here. But in terms of the history of the Justice Department with these kind of police shooting cases, uh, any kind of prosecution is is really rare. And so this same Justice Department actually just as recently declined to get involved in the uh, shooting death of Tamir Rice by uh, police officers in Ohio. So so you're right. It, it, it's rare. Um, but we do get a signal under the Biden administration that they are you know, going to look seriously into these cases, in part because of how incredibly damning they are uh, for public safety and for confidence in the police and, and to really put the police on notice that they have to be operating by the book. At the federal level, it's, you know, civil rights violations are kind of the headline, but there's like conspiracy. They're talking about how there was a cover up, if I'm correct, like to how the warrant and stuff like that, like this thing looks rotten all around from what these allegations from the Justice Department kind of go into what the Justice Department has said. Right. Yeah. This case is rotten all around. And so what we know is that at least two. So there's four officers who have been uh, charged by the Justice Department. At least two of them were involved in knowingly falsifying information that went before that judge as they were seeking the no-knock warrant. And so um, some of the information that was supplied to the judge included things like a postmaster in Louisville indicated that packages were being sent to Breonna Taylor's apartment addressed to her ex-boyfriend. The postmaster has come forward and said, I never... Uh, said anything about that. There is no indication that she was receiving any packages for this man at her apartment. Uh, And there is also, so not only was sort of the, um, you know, sort of key claim in the warrant application absolutely fabricated, but in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor's death, two of the officers that have been charged by the Department of Justice got together and conspired to conceal this information from investigators, including FBI investigators. And so, uh, so, you know, this is going to go directly to mens rea, obviously, that a lot of these officers knew that they were in violation of both department policy, constitutional law and Kentucky law. uh, And then they were trying to cover their tracks. For someone who works in trying to find justice for the wrongly accused and justice for those you know, who have been killed in situations like this, how, I don't know if heartening's the word, but the, the fact that this is happening now and there sh- looks like there will be some accountability, uh, it's kind of a breath of fresh air when it comes to this kind of stuff. I think it's really 
critical that we continue to hold police departments to the highest standard of the law, which is what those officers are taking an oath to do. Uh, when police cut corners, of course, it leads to wrongful conviction. It leads to tragedies like these. And it contributes to this, you know, sort of pronounced cynicism on the part of the public about the effectiveness of law enforcement. And it also, of course, undermines public safety. If, if people have to be concerned that officers aren't doing their job and that officers are willing to use force without the necessary legal basis for it, we've got a real problem in this country. So absolutely, I think that this is an important step forward, at least toward accountability. And when it comes to accountability, the, you know, the higher profile cases, we've seen this case, we've seen with George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, and those other officers uh, not just be charged, be convicted, and, you know, lengthy sentences. Do you feel like, I don't want to say a sea change, because this is like turning a battleship, and it's something that happens incredibly slowly, uh, but do you feel we're getting closer to the right path when it comes to holding uh, police, but not just police, but people in that realm in the to to account? Are we starting to look at stuff a little more clear eyed? I absolutely think that that certainly in the wake of George Floyd's death, I wish I could say in the wake of Michael Brown's death in 2014. Uh, but certainly in terms of George Floyd's death, I think that there has been um, a much greater awareness uh, on the part of the general public about police abuses of power. I think that uh, because of databases like the Washington Post, because of the work of uh, Black Lives Matter activists uh, to, to document these things and to pressure prosecutors at both the local, state, and federal levels, I, I think that uh, certainly we can now see patterns. Uh, certainly it creates pressure on police departments to be more transparent, uh, to create layers of accountability. But as you said, it, it's, it's a battleship. Uh, and, um, and so often, and I think particularly at this moment in American history, there are so many things demanding our attention. Um, and so while I think the public is more cognizant of these issues and more outraged by these issues, I also worry that, uh, that it will quickly fade into the background, uh, if we don't continue, uh, to keep the pressure on. And this is more of a, of philosophical question but why is it specifically with police it's either defund the police or cops are never wrong they do it they do a heroic job and they deserve all the money and everything why is it so hard to say yes it's a job that should be appreciated but there are obviously problems and whether it's in the screening whether it's in the command structure whatever uh, that need to be addressed. Why is it so hard for us kind of as a society to kind of hold two thoughts and not just be all in on both sides? <laughs> I guess right. that's really for anything, but for specifically for this. Yeah, it, it certainly does seem to be very polarized. Um, when I, certainly in terms of the public discourse, it seems very polarized. And, and police have really sort of uh, enjoyed both a, a kind of cultural status uh, where their actions are unquestioned. And that's uh, that's 
sort of lodged in patriotism, curiously, which is, you know, absolutely not the case if you look at other democracies who hold their police uh, to the strictest standards on the premise that police can very easily erode the freedoms that people have worked so hard toward. But somehow in America, we've conflated those things to our own detriment, I would say. Um, at the same time, when I do, uh, when I go out and talk to communities, I think there is more nuance on in those uh, localized conversations about, all right, we have to figure out things around public safety. We have to figure out things around how do we investigate transgressions against one another? And, and would it be good to have some kind of, you know, uh, institutional body that's charged with that? I think there's a, a, a recognition of that uh, from a lot of swaths of people who would define themselves as, as defund. At the same time, um, you know, one of the issues about why we can't have those conversations at broader scale is just the intractability of uh, the power of police unions. And so, you know, it's not like these uh, killings of civilians and the, um, you know, police corruption and malpractice. It's not like we haven't been through this before. Uh, these are almost always the, the, the kind of things that set off uh, different riots across time in the U.S. And, and yet we arrive back at the same point. We get this rhetoric about reform, and then we never really get the reform. And some of that just has to do with the power of the police union, that they have managed to shut off most forms of public accountability, and they exercise undue influence uh, by virtue of political power on our representatives. And so I, I think that's where we arrive at this kind of point of, I don't know what to do. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Jill McCorkle right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation with Dr. Jill McCorkle, specifically with the charges against the officers in Louisville. Does this type of charge at this level, is this send a different message then if it comes from the state, if you understand what I mean? Like, does this more of a, does this, does this hit differently? I think state charges and federal charges hit differently, uh, in part because police typically enjoy very cozy relationships with uh, prosecutors, understandably. Uh, they're both, you know, broadly speaking, part of the arm of law enforcement in the structure of state law. Uh, and so certainly when prosecutors uh, demonstrate a willingness to bring charges against officers, I think it creates a, a kind of bright line warning about behavior that will and won't be tolerated. Unfortunately, that's you know, relatively rare. And that's where having a Department of Justice investigation, independent of localized political influences and cozy relationships matters, because it says, you know, even if you evade justice at the state level, you're not necessarily going to fare so well at the federal level where there aren't those kind of connections. So I think of those kind of prosecutions as creating a kind of bright line, minimal standard about what won't be acceptable. I think it um, I think what you need is leadership, part of the leadership of a, of a city or jurisdiction, part of police leadership, creating normative standards of, about how we police our jurisdiction. And, and so that's creating the kind of, you know, I make sure that my encounters with the public follow the letter of the law and uphold uh, the Constitution to which we have all sworn. But so often police leadership lacks that 
what does this say about, as I know, Daniel Cameron, the who is the attorney general in Kentucky, was kind of in the spotlight with this and got a lot of criticism for not pursuing more charges. And I also read some things and I don't know, you know, without deep diving real deep that there were some grand jury members were concerned about what was and wasn't presented, you know, how it was presented, stuff like that. Does the Department of Justice stepping in like this, what kind of a message does this send, not just to Daniel Cameron, but kind of all prosecutors who want are kind of wrapped into that cozy relationship uh, that, hey, do your job or we'll have to step in? Or am I making too kind of grand a statement about that? I actually think the pressure on the most effective pressure on prosecutors comes from the the public that they serve. And so in that sense, I think on the part of uh, Daniel Cameron, it really is, can he remain in office? Will the public forget that he sort of half-heartedly limped forward into a prosecution here, or will they continue to hold his uh, feet to the fire? And it, it certainly seems in Louisville that's the case. There are ongoing demonstrations every time he is in public. So in that way, I think that that the public matters more than the feds for locally elected prosecutors. And how long do you think this will take uh, to to work its way through the the federal system here before we get some sort of either a a plea bargain a decision what are, are we looking months maybe years or do you think it's quicker than that well i mean it, you know if you look at some of these cases that have just dragged on the you know the decision on the part of the doj not to to uh take up the tamir rice uh killing that has been before them you know for over 5 years now um now they have made a decision in this case that they're going to go forward I would expect things to be underway this year. I don't know that we would have any kind of finality before next year, but I I certainly think that if uh, you know one of the goals of the Department of Justice is to hold uh, police officers accountable for corruption and lying and violating people's uh, civil rights, that they would want a, a speedy resolution to this. And my final question: You kind of talked about earlier the strength of police unions. I've always thought. Once you really kind of dig into this, that public pressure and everything, but the only way we're going to get this really going on the right track consistently is you need the police to want the right things to happen. And I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, you know, but why aren't police unions, departments as a whole more interested in getting rid of of the cops who most of the time, these are not surprises. It seems like when you read deep dive articles and stuff like that, why isn't there more interest? Wouldn't it be better for them if they were more accountable because they'd have more public trust. It would be easier to get more things done. Like I, it's a disconnect in my head that I can't quite come to, but it seems like that's, if we're going to get real change, it's going to have to come from within. No, I ask myself this all the time. You know, it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before the sort of, polarized public debate of, you know, can we come together and solve problems about officers that are poorly trained, officers who are, uh, who have a history of criminal behavior, behavior, who have a history of abuse and violence. Um, it, it seems as though that kind of, uh, you know, thin blue line and, and culture of silence really infects uh, police departments so that they're not even willing to entertain 
uh, a kind of problem solving analysis of what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right. I have spoken on numerous occasions to individual officers who are anxious for public accountability because the actions of certain units in their department or supervisors in their department make their jobs that much more difficult. Um, and they don't feel empowered to come forward and challenge it. And so, uh, you know, they're sort of seeking the sort of check and balance that we have in other spaces in American governance. But really, those police unions have undermined that check and balance process institutionally. And so, again, to, you know, to sort of draw on Philadelphia, uh, our former police commissioner, Charles Ramsey, has uh, on multiple occasions said that there were officers that everyone knew and understood were engaged in misconduct, were engaged in criminal activity. He couldn't get rid of them because they would get reinstated. He'd fire them, but they would be reinstated in arbitration. And that arbitration process has unfortunately been controlled entirely by the the political power of the FOP. And so, uh, you know, from my perspective as a social scientist, they've demonstrated that they don't self-regulate. And so that means that we have to put the check, part of check and balance, back into uh, action. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.